0: Hello and welcome to the Exponential View podcast. My name is Azim Azhar and I'm the host and creator of the podcast and the newsletter of the same name. The podcast and that newsletter Exponential View are my ways of explaining how the world is changing under the force of technology. Today, I'm in conversation with Professor Gina Neff. She's a Senior Research Fellow at the Oxford Internet Institute and at the Department of Sociology at the University of Oxford. And she studies the digital transformation of industries, personal tracking, and the sociology of technology and innovation. Now, before we get on to the conversation, I should note that we did have to do this podcast recording over a phone line. And there is some background noise, but the conversation itself is interesting enough for you to bear with it. For the next few weeks, the Exponential View podcast is sponsored by Spotify. I'm a massive fan of Spotify, and I've used it as my music service of choice for several years. So it's exciting that Spotify has now rolled out a podcast service. This means you can find your favorite podcasts there too. Just launch it and search for Exponential View. So I start by asking Gina to give us a view on where we are in the current state of personal tracking devices.
1: One of the things that we really wanted to do with the book was create a a set of conversations around what is influencing how people think about data about their lives. And then what are the cultural, what's the cultural impact of that? One of the key differences for us was, you know, the sets of communities that people want to understand and make sense of their data with haven't really changed. The idea that people have cultural awareness around certain kinds of activities and not others that that is 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 a constant right that hasn't changed Mm. but now we have connected devices and a belief a widespread belief that if we can gather the data we should so gather first ask questions later and that's really what we wanted to challenge in the book
0: ah that is such a wonderful framing because that's exactly how we think uh, coming out of a, with the product mindset and coming out of a uh, you know, a tech, tech company or even a marketing department is the data is bound to be useful at some point. So we ought to keep it as, as much of it as we can and we can always go back to it. And funnily enough, in the, in the IT world, then you have this, the reverse question, which is we're gathering all this data, but we're not doing anything with it.
1: For me, the moment of clarity really happened when someone who was in the midst of designing this product, the product was very close to market. There'd been a lot of m- media buzz about this particular watch. He said, we have no idea what we're doing with the data we're collecting. Can you help us figure out the questions to ask? And for me, that's when it clicked that we have so created a, an economy based on the idea that, that the data has to be valuable that people were going to market with devices without having thought through what would that ecosystem look like? What, what would that data ecosystem look like? And so, and so our, our real charge for the, for the self-tracking book was, why don't we talk to people who track themselves, find out what they're doing, what frustrates them, and really start to ask questions, okay, how could this look different? How could we imagine putting people more in charge of their data and having a kind of empathy for the activities and practices that they want to have and, and the things they want to learn from that process?
0: And, and what do people want to learn? When you spoke to people, what's, what, what do they want to learn about themselves from their data or what do they want to contribute by collecting that data in the first place?
1: There were so many wonderful experiments that we discovered in the quantified self community. And one of my favorite ones was this gold star chart. And this was done by a user experience designer who wanted to encourage herself to run. She'd never been a runner. And she said, you know, what I like about tracking is it The process of tracking makes me feel good. Like I've earned a gold star. And so she takes this and runs with it and literally gives herself a gold star for every run, regardless of how long, regardless of the quality, she just Mm -hmm. gives herself that little reward. And then she looked back and saw that she had a record of positive outcomes, not a failure. And so I think, I think, figuring out what's motivating a self-tracking experiment and 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 really being kind to yourself right not not trying to change everything at once but understanding so for, so for you Azim this idea mm-hmm. that you like seeing the progress and you have a a certain goal perhaps in mind and you can you can track your way to that that works for some people for others if if they don't see Really rapid progress, or they or they feel like they've had a setback that can be devastating to their intentions. so you know figuring out figuring out multiple ways um, that work and then and then testing them is one of the practices we think really works in self tracking
0: and and what you've discovered is that it, in in a sense the the culture of uh, technology development is is perhaps not to ask what those purposes might be and what those goals might be, but rather you start from the functional, which is we have the ability to take all the heart rates or we have the ability to uh, look at every click that you make, so we'll store it somewhere.
1: Uh, Well, absolutely. One of the devastating numbers that we have are the number of activity trackers, so fitness standalone fitness devices that have gone unused um, within six months Most of Mm -hmm. them we know fall into disuse only after fewer than six months. Right. So, so then what's happening in that process? And one of the arguments we make in the book is that companies haven't been very thoughtful about helping people ask the next question. So I think back to, you know, my various, you know, Fitbit, I had a move, I had a Fitbit. Um, you know, I've tried out a lot of these different devices and I would learn what a normal day of exercise looks like. And then my days kind of fall from that, right? So I, I didn't find them interesting or motivating over a long term, even, even though I had spent all of this time looking at self-tracking and self-tracking practices. E- even I've left mine in the back of the drawer Battery,
0: battery dead. <laughs> yeah, that's testament to something. So it, do you think it's that it's that for uh, a group of us, uh, it's not that important in general, maybe perhaps it's a majority of us, it's not that important or that motivating or beneficial to keep a regular eye? Or, or, or is it that we haven't yet got things that are tracking things, track, we haven't got devices that are tracking indicators that are uh, important enough to us on an ongoing basis.
1: Or perhaps the question we should be asking is, are we developing the right questions for ourselves? And I think that that's a key difference for both social science, for social scientists and scientists alike, right? We think about gathering data and running experiments and, and, and having, a finding allowing us to generate a whole host of new questions. Most self-tracking devices now um, that are being marketed and sold to consumers are based on an idea that data will be collected and then that will provide answers, not new questions. And that's what I think we, we really need to focus on, right? We need to think about... How will put, how will putting um, detailed heart rate information on Apple watches, how is that going to change the kinds of questions people ask? And those questions may not be scientifically valid. They may not have a basis in medical um, science, but they're going to, they're going to open up who gets to ask questions. And that's where I think we're going to see a, a different shift in both self-tracking devices and the data ecology that form around
0: them. That's an interesting dimension. And it seems like there are a few different things that are going on. So on the one hand, you have products that are marketed that are in an alluring way uh, that people buy and then never never use. Um, that seems to be like quite a mi- minor harm. I and mean, we live in a this kind of consumer society where we're forever buying tchotchkes that are of, of no utility uh, at all. And then you get this more nuanced uh Piece, which is where someone literally has a device in their body and doesn't have access to the telemetry right. uh, that it that it creates. Um, I, I also, I, but I wonder about the the extent to which we are um, we're putting we have the power to put quite potent, quite powerful tools in the hands of um, of individuals um, in ways that uh, perhaps they aren't. They aren't ready for. They haven't necessarily given consent uh, for it. That um, in ways that might also challenge things they believe, even though you know the science is is against them. And you know, people are, uh, in a sense are entitled to the to those views. Uh, I mean, we've we've lived a very long time in our existing social dynamics and social systems without there being. Uh, kind of consistent telemetry uh, about us and our lives, and we've now moved into a world where, whether we're buying Fitbits or not, we are cons- consistently measured by the systems that exist in the world, um, in uh, the, in the world that we experience, right from a subject- subjective perspective. And I'll just give you a couple of more examples, maybe to to make myself more clear. I mean, you know, you're you driving your car, and your car tells you um, the average speed that you have driven that car in, um, or your, your phone records without your necessarily knowing when you wake up and when you go to sleep based on your last interactions with it. Um, and, and so we're starting to construct a, a cloud of data about us, but in some senses, we haven't explicitly gone off and said, this is what I want to, to happen.
1: I think there's two things in that. First, I truly believe people should have access and control over the data about themselves and that they should be empowered to ask questions about them, about that data, whether or not they're um, scientifically valid. So mm-hmm. this sounds relatively radical when I talk to a group of clinicians, but, you know, it's, it, we're already living in a data rich world where people have phenomenal access to to health information, why not give them some tools to begin to encourage them to think um, about their lives in in different ways? The the medical profession can't can't dictate that. That, That's already gone. They could could lead in that conversation. They can see themselves as um, the coaches who help guide people in asking great questions about their health, but, but not that they're the only source of good information. Now that said, Azim, I think you've, you've hit on another kind of topic. If there's all of this health related data about us out there, mm-hmm. um, then I not only do I want to know what it is, but I want to know who else can make inferences from that data. The team at Microsoft Research, discovered that they can predict an episode of disordered eating simply based on people's web search history. And they can see these changes in the patterns that um, indicate that an episode of disordered eating is about to happen. Now, this is both powerful because it gives a tool for people to think about how they can care for themselves and their loved ones if they're trying to manage a condition. On the other hand, it's not something we want to empower advertisers with. When people can make inferences about health indicators, we need to start treating that data with the sensitivity as if it's health data, whether or not it generates from web searches or from our smartphones.
0: Yeah, that that is uh, such a fascinating observation. This, this conversation is going to go in a couple of directions. But on this question of inferences, uh, you, you're absolutely right. You, you, you can make such powerful inferences from what could be quite benign or trivial uh, information. I mean, my previous company, which was which was acquired a few, a few years ago, we were early on in um, building trust and true reputation uh, and, and uh, authenticity metrics on Twitter. But it became quite clear that you could predict all sorts of personal and personality characteristics uh, from that data as well, and also by using certain. Um, uh, sort of behavioral uh, attributes like homophily, which is birds of a feather flocking together, you could make predictions about people even if you didn't have any data about them because you had the predictions about all the people around them, uh, and and so so there, there is this challenge about what can you what can you infer from qu- across perhaps a number of different inference steps uh, about somebody, and I think one of your uh, researchers at the OII has uh, published on this idea of re- what reasonable inferences could be should be allowed to be made from from data because it seems to be something that existing privacy rules don't worry about too much.
1: One of the phrases from um, legal scholarship that I've really in I've really found very useful in this is um, predictive privacy harms from Kate Crawford and Jason Schultz, and they've they've thought about. You, you know if if we can narrow a person down to you know 80% likelihood we have exactly um a Mazar, right mm-hmm. then then is it a legal harm if is it a if it, is it a privacy disclosure if we're pretty sure we have exactly this individual, right? I think people are starting to to realize, in the wake of the data scandals around elections, and now with increased news coverage of a smart home and IoT devices and um, geolocation data, that that there is a kind of um, data double, as another author has called it, a data double that exists of them, and we we can't. We can't see that double we can't we can't audit it. we can't see if it's actually saying accurate um or fair things about us. We can't see how that data double is being used in um decisions about our credit about mm-hmm. our um in, in the United States about our health insurance about yeah. our um employment and that and that feels uh, that feels like it's out of our control
0: um, and it seems like data doubles are with us to stay, uh, it's almost impossible to imagine a world where we aren't going to interact in ways that are going to result in there being a data footprint. Uh, and and on top of that, I think once you have that data, the ability for the technical systems, the algorithms, the maths, to then Uh, create some kind of phenotype or fingerprint or segmentation uh, of you are so commonplace that that sort of segmentation is going to happen very, very rapidly and very, very cheaply, soon to be done for free. And and, and so I suppose the argument is data doubles can be extremely useful. They're also going to be inevitable um, and turning them into micro segments is going to become free or very commonplace. So we need to have much more explicitly defined rights frameworks, uh, privileges and remedies uh, available than is are currently have, have been made available.
1: One of the authors who's really inspired me on this is an anthropologist, Bill Maher, who right. talks about, um, data as having kinship rights. And so rather than think about I mean, just my data, right? It, it has two parents, um or in the case of data doubles, right we it multiple parents we have we have many many parents, right so we have the devices and the technology companies um, who have created, stored, circulate um, this information but but we also have my rights and and if and bringing in a notion of kinship rights um, suggests that you can't give up your your data so easily that you, that, that because it comes from you, because you've created this thing, um, y- y- you have a set of rights and responsibilities that continue in perpetuity, um, that those rights mm. are not easily voided. And, mm. and, you know, I, it, that brings us to a very different kind of um, framework for thinking through how, a future with um, data that empowers us, that gives us information, that helps us, you know, learn great things both about ourselves and 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 accomplish you know fantastic things is very different from a, a, a framework that says, "Okay, strap this um, cheap device on, please, and we're going to now know everything about you."
0: It, it brings to mind something that I, I you retweeted uh, and uh, from Frank which was, uh, he, he quoted an article that says, will schools crunch my prenatal health data back to my toddler into the appropriate preschool classroom? It seems only a matter of time before biological data is also enlisted into multi-generational systems of discipline.
1: I think we have to be really careful when we're, um, you know, raising this. I mean, we've, we've, we've so developed a belief that more data is always better that we haven't be even begun to think about what some of the long-term consequences are. We haven't thought about the environmental consequences of storage and maintenance. We haven't thought mm-hmm. about the consequences of repair. And then because I think about organizations and industries, we really haven't thought about how we do um long-term management of a of a data double a data ecosystem. So, you know, uh, anybody who's worked with 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 um, large-scale data knows that you you something gets lost when you um, move data from one context to another when you try to use data that's been collected in one realm and try to make inferences or, or use in another and and usually we understand the those challenges like what is lost but too often I think we're we're creating these notions that, Data are simply um, interchangeable. The thing that gives people pause is when they don't fully, they feel like they're not being um, fully brought into the kinds of conversations and and they're not made fully aware of the kinds of data that are being collected and what's being done with that data. So the recent reporting around geolocation data and how fine-grained it is and that it is gathering data about Children that we're gathering very sensitive data about where people um, live, where they work, where they visit, Um, that begins to feel much more like surveillance than it does contributing to larger social good.
0: Just a reminder that support for Exponential View comes from Spotify. Now you can listen to your favorite music and podcasts in one spot with Spotify's new killer feature, the Podcast Hub. Now back to our conversation and on that question of larger social good in some countries where when we look at uh, organ donation there's a regime of presumed consent which is that if you sort of unfortunately die but still have good organs the state can can or the medical uh, services can take those organs and put them on a uh, into the transplant list pool uh, some people um, i'm one of them has argued that we should also think about having a presumed consent uh, to share on certain classes of data that we generate about ourselves, um, do, do you think that's a viable idea? Because that might be a one way of ac- getting access to the to the social good and demonstrating the the benefits more broadly.
1: Potentially, but let me raise a a, a risk that I see to that kind of data donation model from a sociological point of view. So, for example, um, I did. Um, 23andMe, direct-to-consumer genetics testing, um, mm-hmm. along with one of my graduate research assistants. And, um, you know, that data is not just mine, right? It's my genetic data is also uh, data about my parents, and it's data about my children. And so here are, in a in a very sort of short way, here are people that I have implicated and we're already starting to see some of the thorny legal questions. Can my, can my genetic data implicate me um, in a crime? Can my genetic data be used to implicate a family member in a crime? And those are questions that we as a society haven't figured out yet. So while I think, you know, we need to be, we need to be cautious um, we need to make sure that we're we're setting up these data donation regimes in ways that ensure that people won't be harmed from their own altruism.
0: You know, that's this is making me think uh, quite a great deal about the assumptions that we make about uh, individuality, which I suppose from the Western tradition were most most strongly reinforced by uh during the period of the enlightenment and you know, uh, mill and Wollstonecraft uh and 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 so on and actually it was reasonably easy to cleanly define uh what an individual was right it was done by their physical parameters and their physical boundaries and then some kind of test of their mental competence and that test was usually about uh the age of um uh sort of the age of adulthood and and as we've moved into a world which where Our techniques uh, of uh, network analysis, um, social graph analysis, the ability, the fact that we create these data trails, um, allow us to blur the boundaries between, you know, what what is Gina or what is Azim, so we can be identified or implicated, even if we are not physically there, and that seems to be actually to be quite a Quite a quite a challenge. You know, two things have happened: the my ability to uh, to exclude myself and define myself very clearly, which is my physical domain of my arms and my legs, my body and my head, um, has got much more blurred in the in the digital space, um, uh, I, and so I reach much further out. These implications are the twenty three andMe, one you've discussed, but even simple things like my selfies. I don't take selfies, but if I did take selfies and they were on Instagram might also put you at that particular restaurant because you're in the background. Um, but, but the other thing that, that, that happens is that I don't need to be somewhere in order to be identified by the, by the network in some way. And this seems to, to, to challenge, I suppose, the intellectual heritage that has set up the way in which we have thought about rights and responsibilities of the individual.
1: right. I mean, this reminds me of a couple of things, right? That The extent to which our network has influence over us. And of course, the reason we know some of the incredibly um, interesting, fascinating findings are because we've had this expansion in, in data, right? So we, we have, we can gather more data about more people and we can do analyses that allow us to say things about the network. So for example... One of the best indicators that you will gain weight is that your Facebook friends are gaining weight. So your closest, your closest network contacts. It doesn't matter whether they're geo located near you. It doesn't matter if you're, you're you live near each other. It doesn't matter if you see them.
0: That is uh, that is fascinating, and and it it raises um <clears throat> it raises all sorts of questions about the systems that are being. Uh, built by these technology companies, I have to say that in the last three or four years when I've been you know looking extensively at the rate at which technologies have been uh, d- developing, I have been quoting from uh, uh, Gramsci and Durkheim much more than I had done in the previous twenty years. Uh, so there is something about the sociological question that 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 is coming to bear. I, what does history tell us about the uh, about when we get to this sort of very sharp divergence, you know, the the the, the divergence is that the technical technologies, uh, the chips, the networks, the way they interact, the way they feed into each other, um, combined with the the market technologies, are accelerating. Very, very quickly. Uh, you know, the time it takes to train the ImageNet machine vision uh, network has dropped from sixty minutes to four minutes in fifteen months. Um, chip performance in, in in with for ML chips are, is improving much faster than it ever has historically under the old Moore's law regime. Yet, our sociological organizations, our group organizations, our collectives, our accountability systems don't seem to be evolving in response or just alongside those technological systems as quickly. So there is a a, a significant divergence that seems to to happen. Do you have some perspective of of, of what happened in sort of previous times like this, or is this unprecedented?
1: I do have some perspective, but first I have to put on my sociology professor hat and I have to ask you about Durkheim. So now I'm putting you on the spot. Okay. What have you used from Durkheim, because there's a connection here, I think, of how we we think about ourselves in society right now and this relationship to data.
0: I've mostly uh, used Durkheim because I remember that he started to use empirical observation uh, in terms of looking at how systems behaved. And if I remember, he actually... Uh, went off and was an early anthropologist and was looking at um, uh, sort of tribes in various extended parts of the world uh, and and coming back to make claims that the way people constructed their understanding of the world was not purely uh, empirical, that it was um, constructed also from inner beliefs as opposed to uh, uh, you know extensive measurements
1: right, yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean durkheim I think I, I think Durkheim's actually a really interesting model, and I don't want to get too too geeky sociological theory for your listeners, but hear me out. So Durkheim mm-hmm. is one of the first data driven sociologists who says you can predict something as personal as the decision to commit suicide. Based mm-hmm. on some sociological factors, and that these factors, he argued, kind of add up to what he called um, solidarity—that we understand our role and place in society, and we can have a sense of meaning and um, connection that that isn't coming just from us, right? It, but but it's coming about the set of relationships we're around, and so and so, you're you're absolutely right. This kind of this kind of Move that happened um, just before the beginning of the twentieth century, where we we started to see that we could use data to predict things about people. Durkheim has these beautiful charts, these early charts, looking at these different suicide rates in different cantons, mm-hmm. uh, Swiss cantons, and different different regions of France. Um, but but then, you know, kind of taking it one step further and saying, what we're, what we're literally seeing is a transition from a more um, traditional society to modern industrial society. I mean, he, he mapped that. And so now what I've been calling for is that we start to think about a kind of networked solidarity that we, we, are in, we too are in this unprecedented moment of fine-grained data about ourselves, but the old kinds of ways of building connections and relationships um, across people are falling away. And we haven't quite yet as a society figured out what's going to replace that. But but we know from Durkheim, something has to, otherwise societies don't function very well. And so we're at this Mm -hmm. incredibly important pivot point of trying to figure out what's next,
0: right? So that makes me think that you're arguing that there is a we are at an uh, perhaps not unprecedented because we've been through these pivot points before, but we're at a very significant pivot point to try to understand what the rules of communities and groups and uh, other other structures need need to be. Uh, do you have any you know particular view of how that? plays out is it through the existing mechanisms uh, that we have for for dialogue and and discussion um, or is it do, do you see su- signals that that this is going to happen in some other fashion
1: well you know one of the ideas that durkheim had about 20th century what would what he thought would happen in 20th century society was that we would find meaning in the economy, that we, we really would mm-hmm. find our way because of the division of labor. And we would come to understand that our jobs are important and we'd feel meaningful and satisfied and a part of something bigger than ourselves. And I'm not so hopeful that that's where we, we see the 21st century going. And particularly when we start to look at the changes that automation will likely have in the composition of the workforce and when we see in U.S. statistics, when we see this um, pretty rapid decline in men's labor force participation. So we see a pretty rapid decline in, in, in men um, participating in the labor force. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people aren't getting that satisfaction from work. So there's going to have to be something else that helps society hold together.
0: Right. And and one of the things that some people argue is that the thing that thing that is helping tribes um, hold together is their fear and then their anger and then their hatred towards the other.
1: Right. Which is
0: not a very uh, generative space to be in.
1: No. And certainly history teaches us that the kind of tribalism and nationalism is not, you know, that's that's not a force that ultimately will serve all of society that may serve the powerful it um it, it but it's not it it's it's certainly not the answer um for the greatest number of people um it's it's the answer for domination but it's not the answer for advancement
0: no i i mean i i look at that uh, tr- tribalism that emerges and i th- i think the thing that i find uh, I don't want to necessarily say scary, but the thing that, that concerns me is that it's never been easier, thanks to both digital and physical and crossover technologies, to build walls rather than bridges. Uh, we can segment people in their information spheres and by their networks, and we can start to construct mechanisms of... Um, uh, controlling them and keeping them apart, uh, either through physical infrastructure or digital infrastructure. I mean, you can see within China, the application of social credit could be used to create virtual walls um, and virtual segments, but in terms of the access to real phys- physical life resources. Uh, and so I think one thing that we might not have contended with in our thinking, and, and perhaps you know people who have, is is given the rapidly declining cost of being able to segment, parcel, isolate, um, wall off. What do you need to do to avoid that being the fate of societies? Um, Or are you able to find a way of making societies still focus on the well-being and the success and survival of their members um, in ways that are not necessarily zero-sum? and that 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 dichotomy is a thing that i throw around in my in my head at the moment
1: mm-hmm. we have this kind of fundamental difference where we where we see across europe and the united states we see the rise of a far right and a kind of nationalism and it's easy to say well that's happening at the same time that we have um rapid fire dissemination of things through social media through through the internet and yet the the correlation that there's there's other forces that are happening there that we haven't that aren't being discussed right so so this idea that we have these filter bubbles and and you just kind of fall into them and and sink into them and you never see anything else that's not a function of our information space so then you know then so that's the walls what about the bridges how are how can we use the tools at our disposal to help people um, feel more empathy to one another. We know that social media allow us to feel very passionately when we read. We we now, in the words of Zizi Papakaritzi, we now feel our way through the news when we when we have mm. um, social media news. Right? We don't we don't think our way through. Mm. And so, can we use? You know, and I turn this back to you as a, um, as a thinker. You know, how can we begin to build um, this space that allows us to feel empathy and connection and not fear and um, dissatisfaction and um, anomie?
0: So I, I think we can do a couple of things so as an optimist. One is we create a set of beliefs that there is a joint Vision, Um, and that joint vision is that we can think about human well-being in a sustainable way, uh, and and that we can we can really do that without, you know, without having to go back to to you know live like our ancestors did two thousand years ago. We can do it in an advanced way that that brings with it better health outcomes and all the other other good things, and that can bring us together, Um, and and then we can make. We can start to be more purposive in and intentional, uh, dis- display more intentionality around the products that we build. And one thing that I've noticed in my work with early stage companies and founders and entrepreneurs, and you know, spend some time with a, a VC firm, is that very few founders are coming with a new advertising technology or a new game. People are coming up with. Products and services are not necessarily climate change related, but they do much more closely connect to human well-being uh, or health outcomes or uh, creating, um, increasing the the value of how we as, as humans with agencies spend our time rather than finding out ways of getting us to spend our money. Uh, and I think I feel quite, um, you know, a little bit more optimistic uh, about that. But then on the other hand, I don't think our systems of accountability are working very well, and we have about twelve years um, and or two business cycles to really make headway on carbon output. <laughs> well, Gina, thanks for making the time on on this uh, this conversation. I mean, it's really been um, uh, very inspiring and educational for me,
1: and for me, I really appreciate the chance to get to chat with you and and um, and appreciate um, what the work that you're doing.
0: Well, thanks for listening to the Exponential View podcast. We will be back next week with another cracking conversation and I look forward to hearing from you then.